Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have an interview for you with George Miles, the curator of the Western Americana Collection at the Binnecke Library at Yale. We spend a lot of time talking with and about the work of historians, but undergirding that work is the work of librarians and archivists who diligently assemble collections that scholars can draw on to do original research. George Miles has a wealth of knowledge to share about the historiography of the West, the relationship between photography and the creation of the myth of the West, curating archives to be more inclusive, and much more. But before we start today's show, if you enjoy this program, please consider writing a review. Sharing your experiences with how the show has expanded your knowledge or giving you new perspectives are valuable things to share with potential listeners, and it would be much appreciated by me. Now on to our conversation with George Miles. Since you wrote the chapter titled Rediscovering Native Americans in American History, uh, there's been a lot of amazing work done on indigenous history in the United States. Um, how have you seen the scholarly discourse around Native American history in the West evolve uh, since you wrote that article? Well, if you don't mind, I'll take it back even before I wrote that article, because I think an evolution in Native American history, indigenous history of North America has roots in the late 1960s, the 1970s, when scholars who were then called ethno-historians tried to bring together ethnology, uh, anthropology, and history in ways that were meant to try and challenge the notion of an unchanging Native American culture. The idea that Native American culture was uh, perhaps complex, but that it was stable and that it didn't respond well to the challenges of European invasion and encounter. And so when I was in graduate school in the mid and late 70s, there was a, a lot of interest in trying to explore the dynamic aspects of pre-contact Indian culture and to try and root understandings of indigenous response to colonization in a better understanding of the dynamic qualities that were undergirding uh, indigenous life. And uh, a lot of that uh, great work um, came out in that period and I think began to encourage us to, to see that indigenous peoples were engaged uh, actors, that they had purpose and intent, that their purpose and intent uh, was uh, sometimes on behalf of a tribal community, but sometimes it might've been on behalf of a portion of that community. And sometimes it was on part of a group of indigenous communities who had come to see a common interest um, or to identify a common foe. But I would say that even in that period, an enormous emphasis was put on using relatively recent ethnographic research to try and what they think they called in those days upstream to historical documents, because there was a bit of an assumption that you were gonna find, have a hard time finding documentary evidence about what indigenous peoples actually thought, meaning, meaning uh, documents created by indigenous peoples. Uh, there, there was still a tendency to portray indigenous cultures as oral, uh, and European cultures as literate, and to create a kind of uh, reification there that, that separated the two cultures and was sometimes used to help explain why conflicts occurred and, and why uh, it was so challenging for the two sides to understand each other. And so in my essay, one of the things that I learned in thinking about the essay for that Feshrift for my mentor, Howard Lamar, was that I was guilty of dramatically misunderstanding the history of literacy 
in indigenous America and particularly in indigenous North America. And whereas in my graduate school days, I would have thought that, that literacy didn't take root among indigenous Americans until the 20th century and that the Native American literary renaissance that Scott Momaday kind of heralds in the 1960s was really you know, a new path in, in indigenous culture. But the more I dug in, the more I realized that from the, almost from the beginning of contact, from the time that indigenous people begin to recognize that European colonizers have a technology in which they, they render language on, on pages and that they have symbols for words, they begin to incorporate that. Um, it's not just that um, John Eliot has a translator who helps him create the Massachusetts Bible, uh, but that translator goes on to become, to, to make a career, a livelihood as a printer in Massachusetts. Um, he works he works in print shops for for decades and is actually given credit on the title page of a mashpee Psalter uh, years later. And that got me started thinking and I discovered that the Mohawk had adopted an orthography for their language by the early 18th century and were using it to write letters to each other and that in the midst of the Revolutionary War, when they are uh, essentially driven into refugee camps around Niagara because they, they simply can't defend their villages in the Mohawk Valley, one of the things they put emphasis on in their refugee camp is printing, getting primers so that they can teach their children how to read and write in English and in their own language. This is a bilingual community. Um, and so that got me certainly thinking about the extent to which uh, we had to recognize that not only were Indian cultures dynamic before contact, but that, that dynamism afterward uh, is extraordinarily creative and flexible. Uh, and that uh, as important as traditional practices remain, particularly spiritual practices, just as 19th century European Americans were different than 17th century European Americans. 19th century Lakota were different than 17th century Lakota. Uh, 19th century Navajo were different than 18th century Navajo. And often that meant incorporating uh, not just horses and guns, uh, which are often seen as the two big imports, but a host of cultural practices. And I think in the, in the decades since I've written, one of the strong trends, particularly over the course of the last decade, has been the emergence of a lot of indigenous scholars uh, who in looking at their own history, just as all historians do, have their own reasons for being interested in certain storylines, have their own reasons for wanting to explore certain aspects of indigenous history. And a theme that has really emerged recently is an emphasis on persistence, uh, the, the conscious effort to make sure that Americans generally recognize that Native American population, the population of indigenous communities in this country has been rising now for over a century. It, it hit a nadir in 1890, 1900, roughly. I don't think we know exactly when or exactly what the number was, uh, but those communities didn't disappear. Uh, and it isn't just the genes that survive, it is the communities that survive. And so while people studying indigenous history still want to recognize the violence that is upon indigenous communities, the destruction and the losses that they suffer, there's also this emphasis on saying, but that didn't destroy them. And, and what we wanna appreciate and understand is the extent to which those communities have found ways to persist and rebuild themselves and to assert their right 
to be communities and to govern themselves. So in the wake of the Indian New Deal, which kind of reversed um, decades and decades of uh, compelled assimilation and efforts to kind of break down the tribal community, you, you see uh, community after community finding ways to uh, sharpen its definition of itself and to find ways to move forward. And so a lot of the scholarship we're seeing today is, is not only about um, the, the, as I've said earlier, the dynamic quality of those cultures, but also about the ways in which uh, syncretism, the incorporation of different cultural practices doesn't lead to a disappearance, but leads to a, a, a vital kind of community moving forward. So the work of people like David Truer and, and Josh Reed, uh, Ned Blackhawk and others, it seems to me is, is all about that. And I think you see the same kind of interesting reflection on, on Indian culture and, and Native American indigenous culture in works of fiction like James Welsh's The Indian Lawyer, um, which, is, which is all about a, a Native American who, who might have seemed to European eyes to, to have assimilated, to have become a white man, but who through the course of the story uh, finds his way home, which is to the reservation community uh, in which he grew up, not because he gives up his, his professional identity, not because he, he renounces his modernity, but because he recognizes civic bonds and cultural bonds and personal bonds uh, that, that are not going to go away, um, that, that I am in. And so I think, I think that's been one of the great uh, powerful trends in the last decade. And it's tied to interests in, in exploring how Indians preserve self-government, how they preserve sovereignty, how they've asserted sovereignty uh, over time in working within the federal system and sort of saying we are citizens, but we are, we are dual citizens. We're citizens of both the United States and the Comanche Nation. We're citizens of both Zuni Pueblo and the United States. That's a challenge for a lot of Americans, particularly those in the East Coast who don't encounter indigenous peoples on a regular basis to keep that in mind. And I think the scholarship is, is trying to, to spread the word about that and help make that legible. Yeah, I was thinking a lot while you were talking about uh, my own perspectives on this kind of static indigenous person. And I think the book that opened my eyes up was Charles Mann's 1491 uh, which is a popular a popular book, um, but really captures the kind of dynamism of, you know, of what was encountered by Europeans and how, you know, uh, just the simple fact that there are more people living uh, in Central America than most of Europe uh, definitely altered my perspective. But I think another thing too of, of what you're talking about is I think for a lot of people, um, their understanding or the, the story of uh, Native Americans ends uh, once, you know, the United States has span, expanded all the way west, right? The, the, they're an obstacle to this story. Well, there's a, the, one of the classic, in quotes, in air quotes, books of Indian history of my youth was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, mm -hmm. which painted Indians as noble victims of uh, bad white guys in many ways. Um, but kind of, in a way, was meant to place guilt in the past, uh, make us feel bad, but also in many ways could serve to sort of close the chapter, as you say. And it, it, it struck me as really interesting that when um, uh, Ojibwe scholar David Truer uh, put together a, a history of Native Americans in the 20th century, he actually kind of, I think, consciously chose the title Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native American from Native America from 1890 to the present. And it's sort of, you know, kind of in your face. Wounded knee, wounded knee is not the end. Mm. Wounded, yeah. wounded knee is in many ways a source of anger and and um, of, uh, of determination for people going forward. And it's kind of very appropriate that 
just a few years after D. Brown publishes uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, uh, American Indian movement occupies the settlement on behalf of the local community um, and in opposition to a kind of corrupt tribal government and FBI interference. And so it, it, it really is important for us to be thinking about the history of indigenous Americans in the 20th and 21st century, as well as in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah. Let's talk about the West. Um, this is a podcast about California. So we are always talking about the West. And I've had a few people on that have kind of defined the West for me, and I'm uh, going to give you your opportunity to give your take. Um, is the West for you uh, a moment, a region, or both? I think it's both. For me, I think West is inextricably tied to the Colombian encounter and to all of the events that are set in motion when Europeans sail to the Americas and uh, these two civilizations that really hadn't known about each other <clears throat> begin to explore what this means uh, for them and for the world. And so, you know, at one time, Branford, Connecticut, where I live on the, on the North shore of Long Island Sound in Southern New England was west. Um, it was west of London. It was west of Boston. It was west of, of Providence uh, in, in many ways. Um, but, but that kind of process occurs across the continent in, in rolling waves, it seems to me. It comes from the south. Uh, as well as from the east, it comes from the north. As the does the French uh, proceed through the Great Lakes, it comes from the northwest as the Russians move into Alaska. Um, but there is this sort of process of displacement, of exchange, of trade, of 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 conquest that I think the continent shares. And that I think is a distinctive aspect of every geographic part of the Americas. And of course, that kind of change and transformation is not limited to what happens when European Americans come. It gets replayed when Asian Americans begin to come in, into the country uh, in, in different circumstances, perhaps than, than early European settlers, but nonetheless, uh, again, creating ways of transformation. Having said that, it seems to me that there are historical reasons why the region west of the Mississippi River becomes a distinctive region within the United States and within North America. And I think it has to do with timing uh, in different ways. It, it has to do with uh, the evolution of technology so that as Anglo-Americans in particular are prepared to expand beyond the Mississippi River, there's a different sort of mechanism in place. Uh, you have a, a system of colonization, settler colonization, in which uh, those settler communities are, are easily brought back into the national fold. Uh, you have a circumstance in which technology allows uh, a much more rapid expansion than had occurred east of the uh, of the Alleghenies. And, but that rapidness with which it occurs and the national focus that happens particularly in the United States seems to me that to, to make that region in some ways geopolitically very similar. The territorial system is is really something that works across the far west. Uh, the federal government maintains um, a possession, you know, a title or, or claim to extraordinary swaths of land almost throughout the far west. And there are exceptions. Texas, there's not much federal land, but there's a lot of state land. And so I'm not going to claim that Arkansas is west in the same way that California is. But um, there's a chapter in, in the same book that my essay about uh, Indian literacy appeared, um, 
the book is Under an Open Sky. And the penultimate chapter in that is by a, an American political historian, 20th century political historian, Michael McGurr. And we asked Michael to consider, is there a 20th century West? Does it mean anything? And Michael's essay makes, I think, really interesting points about how the 20th century West is highly distinctive from the, the Midwest, the South, the Northeast. He points to um, a large part of that being the federal presence, the military presence, something that Richard White also speaks about. Um, but he also said it's, it's a peculiarly conservative place in many ways. And he pointed to the ways in which um, modern conservatism, you know, from Reagan on, has often been deeply rooted in the far West and, and kind of an outlier, a leader in certain trends in American political history. So I'm very comfortable with thinking of the West as from, from New England as the trans-Mississippi West. From your perspective, looking east, you might call it the cis-Mississippi West, meaning your side of the river. But, but I do think that it's a, an area of study uh, that bears fruit and that particularly if you're trying to look at large trends, not just understanding exactly what happened in Sacramento, but understanding more broadly, how is 19th century American political social culture shaped? Um, it's not that hard to link the Dakotas with Hollywood um, or Hollywood with the uh, open range cattle industry of Texas and Oklahoma. And it's not that you know, striking to recognize that, that while there are oil fields in Pennsylvania, you know, the Western experience of, of gas and, and oil and, and now rare earth mineral extraction from federal lands is a unifying theme for that part of the country. That's an interesting perspective, thinking about the West as a kind of an inherently more conservative place. Because I mean, from our perspective, we kind of view the, the East Coast, you know, I'm speaking as a West Coast person now, um, as a place of rigidity and, uh, you know, more, more severe social decorum and a lot more rules and etiquette that you must follow. And the West is kind of open and free. But I think that open and freeness is something that, you know, we could talk about uh, was taken advantage of by business interests and different groups trying to trying to have power and control. Um, and that that's part of the story, too. But that's a it's an interesting perspective to, to see it in those terms. I and it, and that way. Yeah, I've, I'm challenged by understanding the. The different ways in which conservative and radical or liberal play out. As you say, most, most East Coast dress codes are, are a good decade behind the West Coast. <laughs> um, you know, business casual in, in New York, uh, it's, it's, you don't see it a lot still. Um, mm. Whereas if you went to San Francisco and were wearing a, 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 a suit and a tie uh, 25 years ago, people would have laughed at you, you know, thought you were stuck up. Um, yeah, yeah. But having said that, it, it seems to me that there are these um, ways in which that emphasis on personal freedom can sometimes become uh, extraordinarily conservative about certain broader social mores. So how you dress is one thing, but, um, but, but, but whether you um, believe in gun control um, as a hot button issue of today, it's pretty striking to me that that there are some significant regional differences there. Yeah, let's. Um, we're going to talk about some of the collections at your library in a second, um, but I want to talk a little bit about photography, um, in part because the West, um, as much as any region, has been documented, and people's picture of it has been based off of photography. But before that, it was based off of uh, some of those. Uh, great visual artists that went west to document it and send it back home to the East Coast. So um, how has, in your mind, photography played a role in creating and possibly limiting our view of what the West is? So it's useful to recognize that the Trans-Mississippi West and photography in the United States kind of grow up together. Um, you know, the 1840s 
is is the decade of Texas, uh, you know, follows Texas, Texas annexation, the Mexican War, the Mexican Session, the California Gold Rush, uh, the settlement of the Oregon controversy. It, it opens the West for American U.S. settlement. And at the same time, that's the first decade of photography. And from almost from the get go, once photography is is invented and, and, and recognized as a tool, you have government explorers thinking about, can I use a photographer to help me record what I see? Uh, and they don't, they don't succeed beautifully in the Daguerrean era because it's so hard. The, Daguerrean, the Daguerreotype is a unique image. And so you have to you can take the Daguerreotype, but then you have to turn it over to a printmaker to uh, create a plate to put it in your book. But by the 1850s, you have photographers scattered throughout the West. You have the emergence of the negative positive process in photography so that a single capture can produce dozens or hundreds of prints. Uh, you have the emergence of a variety of kind of patrons and sponsors for photography, which include the federal government, continues to believe that that photography can, can provide a, a record of how the, how the West is valuable, how the West can be exploited, um, how, how we can uh, take advantage of minerals or natural resources. But there are also all the patrons who are businessmen, whether it's uh, someone who um, wants to persuade investors in uh, the Pacific Railroad that yes, we, we can build this, we have built this, uh, what a great triumph we've had. Or it could be um, farmers uh, in California, large, large scale early agricultural enterprises that are, that are promoting the success of their crops. So photographers like Carlton Watkins and William Henry Jackson in particular, but also Timothy O'Sullivan um, and a host of others uh, have a lot of support to make a variety of large format images which get distributed in various ways through the culture. I think one of the most successful examples of that was A.J. Russell's work on the Union Pacific Railroad. So he's hired, uh, he was a photographer during the Civil War who did a lot of work documenting uh, the Army engineers and their building of pontoon bridges and their construction projects. And I think that probably influenced the backers of the Union Pacific to hire him to take photographs of the construction of the railroad. And as the railroad was complete, they printed a, a beautiful volume of 50 of his photographs, um, the Great West Illustrated, and they distributed it to congressmen and they distributed it to, to backers of the railroad and to people who might buy their bonds. But they also, you know, Russell also made less expensive images in stereo formats. And in the Western Americana collection at Yale, we have a host of, of advertising albums that are using uh, Russell's photographs. So in one case, there's a, a South Carolina fertilizer company. Basically, it's selling bat guano, you know, as a, as a fertilizer to help grow your crops. And they have advertising cards with all kinds of information about their product. But smack in the middle of the cards are images from the construction of the Union Pacific Railroad another album in which New Haven businesses um, have their trade card on one side of a, of a thick board. On the back, it's a photograph of, of the Union Pacific Railroad. And so these images seep into popular culture as well. I think they served to kind of promote an image of uh, the West as tameable, as manageable, uh, an image of American uh, might and power, um, and particularly of techno technological prowess. And so, so that's an important uh, way in which Easterners who never got West got to see the country. There were people who gave illustrated lectures of what it would have been like to go on the Transcontinental Railroad using slides made from Russell's photographs. At the same time that you've got that kind of work, People like Watkins and Jackson were quite enamored of the, the beauty of the Western land. 
And so Watkins in particular, but also Moybridge and several other San Francisco photographers introduced Yosemite to the world. You know, a, a valley that no one really had heard about other than the indigenous people who lived in it in 1845 and 1850 becomes a great tourist attraction and a, and a sort of federally reserved park by the Civil War. And a large portion of that are these grand landscape images that come out. So I, I think that that pattern evolves over the decades. Uh, photographers are constantly exploring different aspects of Western history. Uh, and whether it's Curtis taking photographs of Native Americans, uh, whether it's the WPA photographers, photographers documenting the Dust Bowl and the migration to California, or whether it's Bob Adams documenting the subdivision of Colorado and the building of kind of wretched tract housing uh, throughout you know, post-World War II era, I think photographers have always put in front of a broader audience images of the West. And they're powerful, but they're partial. Mm. Uh, they're subject to misunderstanding. Um, there are things that are missed. Photogra photographers, documentary photographers tell us a truth they rarely tell us the whole truth because the whole truth is too complicated to be caught in one photograph. So it's, it's you know, some photographers can lie. You, you, can, you can cheat with photography, but even if you don't cheat, uh, I think all those images are um, mediated and scholars of, of that work like Marnie Sandweiss, Martha Sandweiss uh, did a fabulous book on this called Print the Legend. And, uh, you know, it speaks, the title speaks to the way in which those images develop a life of their own and in which the images can be uh, manipulated by people writing about them. I can see one thing in an image, uh, Jordan, and you can look at that same picture and say, George, that's not what it says to me. What it says to me is this. And we can, frankly, we can both make persuasive arguments because, because just like the world we see, most photographs are complex and can be multiple things. So I think it's, I think it's a, an essential aspect of understanding the history and culture of the West, but it's, it's not a simple story. It doesn't, it doesn't, it raises more questions oftentimes than it provides answers. You know, I've been thinking about this recently. I was just reading a book, um, uh, The Mind, and it kind of uses uh, visual per perspective as a, as a metaphor for how to think about the mind. And we have this idea that when we're looking at something, there's this whole grand landscape around it uh, that's making up this big picture that our eyes see, whereas in reality, our, our, we're just looking at small dots uh, constantly, and our eyes are moving from dot to dot to dot in kind of a sporadic, almost random way. Uh, but we have this story we tell ourselves that this is representative of a big picture, but our eyes aren't actually seeing that big picture. Our brains are just filling it in. Um, and so I guess my question, my follow-up question, there was two that I was going to have. Um, as a curator, what do you wish was in your collection sometimes that you don't get to see? Um, and then two, uh, beyond just uh, the kind of standard coffee table books of pictures of the West, are there wonderful collections uh, that people should own if they're interested in this stuff? In terms of photography, what I wish we had more of is work done not just by professionals, but by community photographers. And mm -hmm. we have strengths in that. We're fortunate. I was fortunate to meet an extraordinary California photo historian, Peter Palmquist from uh, born in Ferndale, California, and a longtime staff member at Humboldt State. And Peter took up photography in high school, was a microfiche photographer in the US Army in the 1950s, came back and used the GI Bill to get a degree in, at Humboldt State and, and was making a career as a photographer when he went antiquing with a girlfriend one day and he hadn't had any interest, but as his girlfriend was looking at things in a shop, the shop owner looked at Peter and said, well, what do you collect? He said, well, I don't collect anything. And she said, well, what do you do? 
He said, well, I'm a photographer. And she reached under the desk as Peter told the story to me and she pulled out some tintypes and some, some cabinet cards, some very simple, un, unglamorous examples of 19th century photography. And Peter looked at it and said, he said but it, his profession had a history and he became passionate about filling that in. So he had a respect for great photographers like Watkins. He loved to collect Watkins when he could, but he was also fascinated in the local photographer in, in the small town in Nevada. We eventually were fortunate to acquire Peter's collection. We have a lot of that kind of work, but what I'm still missing and what I would like is there have to have been more African-American photographers working in the 19th and early 20th century West than are represented in our collections. There have to have been more uh, Latinx, um, you know, Mexicano photographers working in Arizona and New Mexico and Southern California than we have represented in our collection. And so just as you try and expand the range of documentary text materials to represent as many perspectives in Western history as you can, I've kind of struggled to do that with, with, with photography as well had some breakthroughs in contemporary collections where we've been able to try and build on that and acquire work by indigenous photographers like Will Wilson or, or Jada Gray Eagle or Lee Marmon. And I've been able to acquire some work from Hispanic photographers, particularly Miguel Gandard of New Mexico uh, and African-American photojournalist uh, Harry Adams. But it it's challenging. And I think that, that we do need a, a multicultural perspective on photography, not just as subjects in the photograph, but as the people making it. That, that's one of the things I would like. In terms of um, your second question, from, from the point of view of you as a high school history teacher, me as a private citizen, not so much as a curator, what can I do personally? It's pretty much, you're going to collect photo books. And you can think of those, as you said, the coffee table books where National Geographic or maybe even Aperture has, has put together a grand you know, study of the famous images of the West. I, I'm not that excited by those books, but one of the developments of the last 20 years with the emergence of digital photography and inkjet printing has been the proliferation of relatively inexpensive, often independently published photo books by, by photographers throughout the country, but in many parts of the West. And some of that work is just extraordinarily fascinating. Um, and some of those photographers have made a name for themselves in the gallery world, the commercial world. I think of Alex Soth and his work, uh, particularly in the, in the sort of Mississippi Valley, it's fascinating kind of look at the contemporary culture and society in the West. Um, but those, those broad photo books that people are putting together are, are just really quite extraordinary. There are two photo book publishers who I think re regularly do really, really interesting work. And if somebody were, you know, willing to spend a little bit more money than, 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 you do for a, a, a simple mass market photo book. The books published by Radius Books uh, in uh, Santa Fe or Albuquerque, uh, David Chickie is the head there, um, are really quite innovative and exciting. And then um, up in the Pacific Northwest, Nazraeli Press has been doing fabulous uh, photo books, many, many of which are, are about the American West. And um, you can really put together over a period of time, a wonderful eclectic collection of intriguing work by looking at what those two firms are doing. Well, let's turn uh, to the collection at Yale and um, the work you've done there. Let's start by talking a little bit about what Western Americana means. Um, what are some of the things uh, that you have in your collection that might interest listeners interested in California history? Um, and then what have you learned as, uh, as a curator um, working with these materials um, that you think about um, at this point in your career? So as I suggested earlier, 
you know, Western Americana at Yale is essentially the history of North America west of the Mississippi River. It encompasses the northern Mexican states today, particularly in the period of, of colonial and Mexican national governance of the Southwest. So Sonora, Sinola, Coila, um, we include those regions. It includes the Canadian Prairie Provinces and the Northwest Territory. Uh, obviously, it includes Hawaii. I continually wrestle with whether Hawaii's in or out. Um, is Hawaii part of the West or is it part of the Pacific world? You know, it, it's in as often as it's out, but it's probably not in as much as, say, California is. When, when I began as curator in 1981, the collection was also defined fairly sharply chronologically to be, to be about documenting the frontier history, history or frontier era of that portion of North America. So the latest materials that, that my predecessor spent much time acquiring were sort of in the decade before World War I to kind of document the uh, so beginnings of dense settlement in places like California, the, the emergence of Los Angeles in the half century after the railroad arrives, um, the, the development of Seattle and Tacoma, um, and so on. The interest in that era was both broad and narrow in different ways. The donors who played a major part in shaping the Yale collection of Western Americana, some of whom were Yale alums and some of whom were not, were by and large interested in uh, unusual firsthand narratives of the experience. And there are lots and lots of those from Cabeza de Vaca's account of his shipwreck, his survival on the, on the uh, beaches of Galveston Bay and his 10 year trek to Mexico to, to kind of get back to uh, what he thought of as civilization, all the way through Charlie Syringo's uh, sort of pioneering account of, of his life as a Texas cowboy published you know, in the late 19th century. You'll find wonderful personal narratives. And that clearly was a major theme for those collectors. There was also an understanding that governments, whether that was uh, the Spanish crown or, or, or um, the British crown or, or the French king, they played an enormous part in this early frontier era. So there's a lot of emphasis on official documents, on the actions of, of uh, national colonial officials that was in the early collection. What was striking is that most of those early collectors were very eclectic in terms of medium. So they not only collected books and pamphlets, they collected manuscripts. They sometimes would collect groups of significant groups of personal papers. Uh, they also collected visual material, drawings, watercolors, sketchbooks, illustrated books that depicted the West. So in that way, the collection had a, had a remarkable breadth of, of approach to how the West might be documented. I was also struck when I took over the collection that even then there was a lot of attention paid to women's perspective. Uh, I think that was in part because oftentimes women had more time to write home to their family about what it was like to be, you know, living in Gold Rush, California, have, having, having moved there. What, what was it like to live in this rugged society in which it was mostly men and, and even in Kansas, uh, a lot of the material we have for Bleeding Kansas comes, comes from women's accounts of, of that life. What was missing is, particularly in the 19th century, nobody seemed to be very interested in, in the working stiff. Um, it was okay if you were a prospector. You know, you were interesting if you were a prospector. If 10 years later you were stuck in, in digging in the, in the shafts of the Comstock load in Virginia City as a, as a poorly paid miner, not so interested in that story. It's okay if you're a, you know, a cowboy like Charlie Syringo 
but if you were working in the stockyards, nah, not so not so interesting. I wanted to move the collection forward chronologically. And I wanted to make sure that we, as I said earlier, tried to pay attention to underrepresented voices. So Native Americans were frequently an object in the collection. They were depicted by Alfred Jacob Miller in extraordinarily interesting watercolors. They were photographed by Curtis, but it was a little harder to find their voice. I was excited when I began to discover and learn about indigenous ledger art, work by Plains artists, uh, uh, Kiowa and Comanche and Cheyenne prisoners of war, uh, people who had been taken to Fort Marion by Richard Henry Pratt, the eventual founder of Carlisle Indian School, in order to kind of uh, hostages to, the, to maintain their people's good behavior. And Pratt encouraged them to continue indigenous practices of visual representation, but do it on paper, do it with colored pencils, do it with watercolors instead of painting on hides with dyes. And that work really caught my eye and it, it was part of what led me to think about other ways in which in Native Americans were expressing themselves. It's part of what led me into that idea of, of literacy uh, that I spoke about earlier. And so we've tried to, to expand that. So for California, when I arrived, we already had an outstanding collection of early Spanish travel accounts of California. We had some fabulous volumes that were done by a, a German artist, Ludwig Koris, who was part of Russian Trans-Pacific explorations. And they, as they coasted along the, the California coast and visited Spanish missions, Koris was making wonderful depictions of, uh, of, of the scenes. Um, we, we had really strong holdings on the gold rush and on the Overland Trails experience. William Robertson Coe, who was the founding donor of the collection at Yale, uh, had built one of the largest private collections of Overland Trail and Around the Horn accounts of travel to California and Oregon in the 1840s and 50s. What we didn't have so much was, was a kind of indigenous perspective on that. And over the years, sought various ways to bring that out. We, we, I learned about uh, a Yurok woman, uh, Lucy Thompson, who in 1916 published an autobiography uh, uh, called to, to the American Indian. It's a strange title that I still don't fully understand. Um, her husband, who was a white man, clearly helped her write it. But we were fortunate to acquire a group of papers and photographs, family photographs and papers and the manuscripts that went into the creation of that journal. More recently, I've had the chance to uh, acquire work from a Southern California indigenous ar ar artist, Weshoa Alvitre, who did a series of illustrations for my colleague at Yale, Johnny Farragher's recent book on California history where every chapter um, uh, Weisha has done the, the introductory illustration for it. And so here's this kind of indigenous eye looking at the history of California. And how does she see uh, these key events? Um, and, and so oftentimes the illustrations of you know, the, the key moments are done not from the perspective of the European conqueror, but from the perspective of the indigenous community resisting or challenging, or in some cases, perhaps welcoming the newcomers. Um, and in other cases, kind of looking at how does, how does this change over time? We knew, we know, have known for a long time that enslaved African-Americans were brought to Gold Rush, California, uh, we know that there was a significant, if not extremely large, population of African Americans in California long before the post-World War II major migration. Um, but by and large, references to that and histories about that were based on newspaper accounts for decades. Um, 
some years ago, now more than a decade ago, I was fortunate that a California family and an antiquarian bookseller reached out to me and told me the story of um, a friend of the, the third generation of an African-American family that had settled in the Sierra Nevada foothills in the 1850s. The father of the progenitor of the family, William Sugg, had been brought to California as a slave from, from North Carolina, but been manumitted in 1853. Um, his manumission papers are, are found in the county records. He settled and became a, a, a blacksmith and, a, and a, a ran a stable, M married Mary Sugg, who um, kind of became a seamstress in town. And they bought an adobe home on the plaza, uh, later expanded that home, and three generations of the family lived there. And uh, when the third generation passed away without children, uh, the house had passed uh, to, a, to a close high school friend of the, of the third generation, McDonald, I'm gonna forget Mr. McDonald's first name. And so here was this wonderful record of, of a family that had been in California since the gold rush, an African-American family that had persisted for over a, a century and a half in Sonora, California, uh, had been part of the framework of town. Um, and, and you could see that the library had survived. Some of the furniture from that home is now at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington. Um, the library, the sheet music, the photographs, the papers are with us in Beinecke. And that to me was just an extraordinary sort of breakthrough in terms of broadening our ability to tell the, the multicultural history of California. Another area where I struggled when I started in 1981, we had a strong collection documenting the incarceration, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, back in the 1940s, I think a Stanford librarian had recognized that, that documenting that episode in American history was really important. And he set out to collect camp newspapers. And he, he managed to acquire two sets, one of which was at Stanford, and one of which he thought should be available on the East Coast. And he sent it to Yale long before I was born. And so we had these wonderful material. And I thought I should build on this. For a decade, for 15 years, I talked to people in the book trade and I looked for opportunities at auction and I found very little to add to what we already had. And then when Congress and the federal government formally apologized to the Japanese American community for the injustice of incarceration during the war, it was as if a floodgate opened and materials that I think perhaps had been held close to the vest because families felt both anger and shame about the experience were more willing to, to allow them to be seen by others. And so in the last 20 years, we've been able to, to greatly expand our holdings there. There's a fabulous online exhibit that was put together by a Yale graduate student, Courtney Sato. And I'm gonna to have to fill you in on the title of that. I've forgotten the exact title of the exhibit, but it was built from Yale's collections and she's added to it over time. Um, but what I've also found is now in the last five to 10 years at the very end of my time as curator, I'm finding more and more material that documents the Japanese American and Chinese American presence in California in the decades before World War II. Um, Japanese language directories for San Francisco, for Los Angeles, for the Pacific coast. There, there are 600 page volumes that basically um, identify all the Japanese American businesses from Seattle and Tacoma down to San Diego clearly meant to circulate within the community as a way of, of providing support and economic opportunity, but just extraordinarily revealing. And we've found that, as I sort of suggested earlier, there are Japanese American families who are taking photographs of themselves, taking photographs of themselves um, at, at the temple, taking photographs of themselves 
picnicking, taking photographs of themselves, um, celebrating uh, both American and Japanese holidays. And the ability to add those kind of materials has, has really been great. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing students and scholars take advantage of those. Well, yeah, and we, we talk a lot on this episode about, you know, some of the end products, you know, books and research, but, you know, it, a lot of it can't be done, or most of it, if not all of it can't be done without uh, the availability of well-organized archives. And uh, so I just have two more questions to close and let's, let's just talk just for a second about why archives are important. And then from your perspective, what's the future of archival research? Sure. The past can be fleeting. The present is fleeting. And the mission of libraries going back to Alexandria, it seems to me has been able, has been to try and make possible the contemplation of the past in the present to shape where we wanna go in the future. And so the bringing together of documents of all sorts, um, you use the phrase archives, but, but I, I think of, of large collections of books and pamphlets and ephemeral material broadsides to be as significant as acquiring manuscripts. Um, I think the acquisition of photographs and watercolors drawings uh, is key. Um, sheet music can be fascinating. Uh, so pulling together that material with a, co with a coherent focus, it doesn't have to be explicitly narrow but to sort of say, my job here is to try and make sure that the evidence of the world gone by is available to people today and tomorrow to kind of understand where they came from, to, to think about how the past is both like today and extraordinarily different from today. And in doing that, how we could imagine different kinds of futures. So I think there's an extraordinary civic role for archives and, and humanistic scholarship. Archives in many ways are meant for specialists or for people who are prepared to, to really dive in. Uh, un, unlike a museum, in which you can kind of walk in and spend an hour contemplating a masterpiece and thinking about it. For an archive, you're, you're more likely to, to need to come back time and time again and read closely and read voluminously and sift what's mundane and perhaps not interesting from what is really revealing. But it's always interesting to me that what was uninteresting to someone 30 years ago has become very interesting to somebody today. Um, gender is a good example of that, where, where people thinking about gender identity are, are finding interesting evidence that gender was as fluid 100 years ago as it, as it is today. Our concern that people won't stay in their in their assigned lanes is going to wreck civilization. Well, people haven't been staying in their assigned lanes for a long time. And the evidence is there if, if you go and look for it. So I think archives are, are essential to our understanding of who we are. I think they will continue to be. I think that it will be interesting to see how we do a job of preserving digital information, archives of the future are not just going to be tangible material in the sense of, of paper uh, of one sort or another. They're also going to be bits and bytes. And, and there's a certain tangibility to, to disks and to, and to the storage of those things. But obviously, it's a different kind of world. One of the experiments we've been doing at Yale subsidizing the internet archive and its Wayback Machine to do weekly scans of some interesting social justice websites in Southern California, three sites in Los Angeles, where 
you know, faculty have said to me, they're an interesting group of people here. They're dynamic. That website changes weekly because of new causes, new events, new drives. Um, and somebody ought to be capturing that because otherwise, how are we gonna how are we gonna understand the influence of the web of social media on our culture in the 21st century? So we're trying to find ways to web archive. I, I'm getting ready to retire in three months, but I'm gonna keep watching the scene and and looking at what happens. I hope that answers the question you asked. It did. Um, let's close by uh, book recommendations, which is how we always close. Well, I'll lead, I will lead with a specific to California, a book that's just out uh, that uh, I mentioned briefly. Uh, John Mac Farragher, who grew up in California before coming East for his graduate education and, and, and teaching at Holyoke and at Yale, has just published a fabulous one volume overview of California history. It's called California and American History published by Yale University Press this spring. It's gotten uh, really great reviews in uh, both the San Francisco and Los Angeles newspapers. And I think it's a really accessible read that is also really a serious read. It, it, it's not uh, difficult to follow, but John takes on important issues of diversity, of the many threads that go into in, into the story of California. And he, he brings it from the first settlements of indigenous peoples in California into the 21st century. So I highly recommend that book. I picked three other books that I thought are interesting in the way in which they perhaps challenge our conventions of thinking what a Western history book might be about. Um, one of my favorites is, is a book by Joshua Reed. Josh is a professor of history at the University of Washington. And uh, he published a book called The Sea is My Country, The Maritime World of the Machas, an Indigenous Borderlands People. So he's looking at an Indigenous community that lives on the far northwest part of the Olympic Peninsula. You cannot be farther west on the, on the continental 48 than the Maka are. And we so often think of, of indigenous people in terms of riding horses or being farmers or being hunters. And Josh points out this was a seagoing people. These were people who, who hunted whales. These were people who traded thousands of miles up and down the Pacific coast even before Europeans arrived. And he looks at how that evolves in the course of the encounter with Europeans, a fabulous book published by Yale University Press in 2015. Alice Baumgartner, who's a professor of history at the University of Southern California, has done a spectacular book called South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War. It's an exploration of the Underground Railroad that didn't run to Canada, but ran through Texas and into Mexico and thinks about the ways in which African-Americans and indigenous Americans collaborated to find freedom uh, in, in Mexico um, and the ways in which that underground railroad uh, influenced um, Southern fears and efforts to kind of uh, protect uh, slavery and, and that way of life. That book was published by Basic Books in 2020. And, and it's a great way of, of, again, thinking of borders in the American West, thinking about the ways in which what we might wish was, was a more rigid border has always been porous, has always been a, a source of migration back and forth. And then the last book I'd really encourage people to consider reading on Western history is another one I mentioned earlier, which is David Truer's T-R-U-E are Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present, which was published by Riverhead Books in 2019. And it's a broad overview that um, I, I think is um, really fabulous for shaking up our viewpoints of Native American life in the 20th century. 
And I can mention one more California book, which has been out for a while. Um, and it is a dense book. And it's, it's a difficult, it's a book on a very difficult topic. But Ben Madley, M-A-D-L-E-Y, who's at UCLA, did a book called American Genocide. And it is an extraordinarily well-documented, carefully presented account of the extraordinary war on California indigenous peoples in and after the California gold rush. There's, there's always been a large scholarly debate about whether to regard the European conquest of North America as genocide. It's hard not to see California's war on Native Americans in the mid 19th century as anything other than a genocidal campaign. And Ben, ben does it with extraordinary precision. Uh, he's, he's really careful how he uses words. It's, it's not a polemic, but it, it doesn't spare any punches. So a, a hard book to read, but I think an essential one for us to come to terms with the origins of the United States we've inherited. I really appreciate you doing this. This was a wonderful conversation. I learned a lot and I know the listeners um, are really going to appreciate this. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California, or by leaving a rating and review. We'll see you next time. Thank you.